1 Samuel 17. Now, Heavenly Father, we do ask that your Holy Spirit is present here among us. We have gathered in the name of Jesus. We know you're here. We ask, Father, that you'd open the eyes of our hearts so that we could understand and see these truths. What a message tonight from David and Goliath facing giants with, without a lot of resources and just a lot of faith. Father, the things you can do, you can do the impossible. And that's what we need tonight. We need miracles. We need help. We need your strength. We need your power made perfect through our weakness. So we pray that through the study of this chapter, you would do just that. Help us to be overcomers filled with faith to do great things for the Lord our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, certain Old Testament narratives uh, make wonderful Sunday school stories, but we must be careful never to trivialize um, any of these accounts in our minds. Now, uh, Noah and the ark is one of these things, uh, a type of Jesus Christ, actually, but uh, oftentimes we think of it in terms of uh, a children's Sunday school page, but Jesus uses it to talk about um, the surprise coming, the rescue of Believers and the wrath of God coming upon a Christ-rejecting world, the destruction of the earth. And so Jesus says, if you want to see a picture of how the world ends, check out Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Uh, so it's indeed more than a simple children's story. Now, David and Goliath is the same sort of idea. It's a great Sunday school lesson, isn't it? and it's got indispensable truths for adults. Facing a giant with uh, nothing but a little courage and a strong faith, uh, as a teenage David is going to meet a huge armed warrior, and, and God is going to give him victory against insurmountable odds. It's the story of the Christian life. It's the story of your life and my life because we face those kinds of things in our lives. And tonight you're going to see the Holy Spirit kind of decode for you, if you will, how to face these kinds of things like death and demons and the devil, life circumstances that seem uh, insurmountable. And tonight, through David's encounter with a Philistine warrior, we're going to learn the lesson once again that with God, all things are possible. You don't need a lot of resources you don't need a lot of what the world thinks is important to get something done. This is the lesson tonight, is you can have nothing. Nothing plus God is a lot. And that's the lesson we're going to see tonight. So here in chapter 17, some context. Uh, uh, teenage David has been singled out already through uh, the prophecy and prophet Samuel as the Lord, as the one the Lord has chosen to replace King Saul, who's now clinging with the murderous grip to a position that's no longer his through the command of the Lord. The Lord is now working against Saul because Saul was working against the Lord. That's how it goes. Uh, to the pure, he shows himself pure. To the shrewd, he shows himself shrewd. To the crooked, he shows himself crooked. That's just the way he is. And so the, Saul has been crooked, so the Lord is being crooked with him. And uh, David has been pure, and the Lord is working 
because he's compliant. And so you'll remember that uh, though David has been anointed, set apart, you know, he's going to be the next king. That was a private ceremony. And so uh, he's not famous yet until this chapter. He will become famous tonight. Um, David went back to shepherding after he was anointed. And the last time we saw, uh, God has now been moving David into position because David needs to be somewhere near the throne. And so how is he going to get from the sheep pen to the throne? Well, the Lord has opened the first door to the palace. You'll remember last time for context, King Saul uh, is suffering from a demonic oppression. Uh, the Lord has allowed an evil spirit to seize him. And when he goes into his fits, of whatever that is of torment, um, his attendants see this and suggest music as a remedy. They say, let's look for a good harp player. And then somebody pipes up, wow, uh, you know, I just happen to know this excellent harpist and he's got other impressive qualities. He's brave and speaks with wisdom and he presents himself well. And so David's invited in. Saul sends for David. David doesn't have to manipulate himself. He, he knows that he's going to be the king, but he doesn't have to make it happen. We don't have to make it happen. God makes it happen. We wait and trust in him. And so he's been invited and he's been playing when uh, Saul is going crazy or whatever it is and the demons are fleeing and Saul is feeling better. And now Saul is, has, uh, has signaled that he wants David to hang out around but David's not yet moved in he's going back and forth from sheep pen to palace that's where we pick up tonight verse 1 of chapter 17 okay there you go thank you and I, I see people who are cold as well so you can turn off those the top fans because it just distracts me to see uncomfortable sheep they need to be happy. And when I see them fanning like this, I get all crazy. It's just not good, especially when they start leaving. That's a bad sign. You know, I told you, little bunny trail here, I told you about the time I was looking at the, the, the tea selection, and I saw sleepy time tea. <laughs> and I, I was a little concerned. <laughs> you know, I, I did tear it up. And, and threw the whole package in the garbage. You know, that's not what we need here. Amen? All right. Now, where was I? Somewhere, oh, reading the text. What a great idea. All right, verse 1. Now, the evil Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 125 pounds. I've done the math for you. I've converted it. Um, on his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. 
Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Let's pause there for Roman numeral number one. The battle lines are drawn and the challenge given, and the Philistines are aggressing. Now, slide one. These places exist. Uh, here's the actual area you can visit on a tour, and I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, why don't you, you can turn the lights down so that they can see it a little bit better. So the Philistines, they're over here. They go down here, and they, they're camping on, on these hills here. In between's the valley. There's a creek that we're going to hear about later where we find five smooth stones. And um, the, the armies of Israel are on this side. And so this is the valley, and this, is this, this place can be visited today. This is how they were situated. And what's interesting, and you can leave the picture up, is, is that it wasn't an uncommon practice. Well, I guess you can turn the lights back on here. Thank you. My lights. Very good. It wasn't an uncommon practice in ancient military history to let uh, two representatives uh, fight it out uh, to, in order to minimize the bloodshed and the mass casualties. And so uh, what they would do is uh, pick somebody to mediate and represent the whole army. And so they draw up the lines on one side and then on the other, and then there'd be like a meadow or someplace where they could meet in the middle. The winner takes all. Verse 9, it says, If he is able to fight and kill me, we become your subjects. If I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And so a guy like Goliath on their side, it really made all the more sense to do it this way. Now, Goliath's uh, description further defines what's going on here. In verse 4, it says, Goliath is called a champion. In Hebrew, the phrase means the man in between two armies, or the in-between man. All right, and so uh, really Goliath's permanent position being that he was so tall and huge, the middleman, the inter intermediary, he's the representative. So, you know, if he was alive today, the people would see him and say, hey, man, you got to play as a center or a forward for a basketball. Now, back then it was like, dude, you've got to be the champion. You've got to be the champion. The champion is a position that armies had. Or the biggest, strongest, baddest guy there, and they would uh, represent. And so that was his permanent job. Now, he, in Bible speak, he is six uh, cubits and a span that puts him from eight, five to nine, three, or four. And so uh, the NIV just calculates and says he's about nine feet. 
Now, uh, with armor and weapons to match the size. Now, Goliath's tall, but his height's not unheard of in human history. Uh, Robert Pershing Wadlow was 8'11 at his death in 1940. There's a Ukrainian man alive today uh, that is 8'5". Now, Goliath is from Gath in verse 4, which is a Holy Spirit heads up because 400 years earlier, we're told in Joshua chapter 11 and verse 22 that the Anakim, descendants of Anak, come from Gath, and they were known for being a people of great uh, size. They were called giants. And so here we are some 500 years later, the city is still putting out big boys. Now, uh, by the way, they're not diseased. He's not diseased looking. He doesn't have a disease. He's just perfectly proportioned, healthy, and strong at nine feet, two inches tall. He's no match for even someone who was considered tall. Head and shoulders above all the rest was King Saul. But he's dwarfed in size to this monster kind of guy. Now, the portrayal of Goliath uh, may well be the most detailed physical description in all of Scripture, and there's a good reason why you're getting such detail. The Holy Spirit really, I believe, is saying you humans really uh, need to realize what you're up against. You don't stand a chance without God's help. Now, the Holy Spirit is highlighting the sobering truth. Here's a quote from a good commentator. The evil forces that come against the believer are infinitely stronger, and without God's help, we are helpless, powerless, and doomed to destruction. Without outside help, without a miracle, there's zero chance of overcoming. Uh, he's, nine, he's a nine-foot-tall, walking, impenetrable fortress. Now, verse 5 says he has a bronze helmet on his head, a, a coat of scale armor of bronze. I'll show you. You can put the, now, the whole, he wore an outfit that had these movable pieces of bronze, uh, and, and that, that's exactly where you get scale. The word scale is in the text because it looks like fish scales, and that's exactly why they named it that. And on his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and we don't use that word. It's leg armor, and so you see that they were made of bronze. So this guy is heavily um, armored up. He has a bronze javelin slung on his back, and his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. Now, uh, on, the, on the, the loom, right, you'll see the fat rod in the middle. So he, he, they're describing, the Holy Spirit is describing, the handle of, just the handle of the spear was as broad as that. And, and the end, the tip in itself was iron and 15 pounds. And so, you, and he gets a shield bearer uh, goes ahead of him. And so, uh, the shield bearer was another warrior carrying a protective shield the size of a small door. This guy is just seriously a walking fortress. How are you going to deal with a guy like this? You know. So, do we get it? Goliath lives. Thank you for that slide. Goliath is alive and well in general terms, all-encompassing sin nature that we have. Think about it. 
Every cell in your body is programmed to commit mutiny against the Lord who gave it life. Jeremiah 17.9, our hearts are desperately wicked beyond understanding and beyond cure. Who can understand the wickedness of our own heart that deceives us? Paul the Apostle, he says, I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a wretched and miserable person I am who will free me from this body dominated by sin and death. That's a giant that we face. And without the Holy Spirit, we're doomed. A pagan world that wants to squeeze us into its godless mold. We face another uh, giant, the evil one himself. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. We have a roaring lion, the devil, who seeks to devour you and me. And he has help with demons, the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Yeah, and then death is going to come calling. The grim reapers going to come and strike. And who's up for that? What are you going to do about that? That's really the point of describing this hopeless situation and saying, I hope you understand that every believer has to face insurmountable odds stacked against him or her. You better have a plan. You better have a middleman. You better have a champion who re represents you, and that champion better be stronger than death and demons and sin and the devil or else you're pretty much a dead man. That's the message here, and that's what the description's all about. I like what one writer said. <clears throat> Believers generally tend to take Jesus' words, apart from me you can do nothing, very lightly, until we're on the field facing Goliath, forced to understand the odds stacked against us. Then Jesus' words take on new meaning. I like mighty fortress the mighty fortress is our God. I love that hymn. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord of hosts is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. So, uh, notice Goliath's first strategy is to demoralize his opponent, verses 8 and 9. Now, uh, this one-man fortress cries out. Can you imagine him with his deep, menacing bass notes? Why are you all lining up to battle? It's unnecessary. I'll represent the Philistines. You've got Saul or someone else. I'll kill him, and you'll become our slaves. Sound good? I defy you, armies of the God govern the the governed by God, the, the armies of Israel. Israel means governed by God. So he says, I defy you, who are governed by God. That's a serious mistake. That one line there. Now King Saul. And his best soldiers would hear these taunts. And verse 11 says they were dismayed and terrified. You know, Saul 
knows that everyone's looking to him because why? He's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. So not to mention he's king. You know, this is why we hired you, remember? Back in a few chapters ago, you know, you're supposed to be saving us right now. In any contest, it's always useful to demoralize your opponent. This is what he's doing, to strike fear in their hearts. David Guzik. First, it may keep you from ever going to battle with them because you're so afraid. Second, if it does come to battle, uh, you will fight with fear and apprehension. So with your words, you've done a lot to win the battle before it even begins. Now, uh, this, of course, is significant strategy of the evil one against all Christians. Uh, we don't battle against flesh and blood like I've been talking about, but we have spiritual giants. The devil has a heavy interest in making you dismayed and terrified before the battle ever wins. He can't have the believer's soul, but he can hinder the believer's service by making you afraid. Uh, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So he says, be filled with the spirit and you will have peace. How, how you do, do you do that? Well, in his presence, there's peace. In his word, there's confidence. And in obedience, there's quiet strength. Verses 12 through 24. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, as you'll recall, and in Saul's time, he was old and well-advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, we've met him before, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this, an ephah is about a basketful of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit See how your brothers are and bring me back some assurance from them. And they are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. It's early in the morning. David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. So point number two then, the providence of God. We see that a lot in these chapters. From the sheep pen... It's time to get David to the front line so he can become famous and kill this giant. Now, the providence of God, I've defined this for us before. Uh, it's simply this. Providence is the means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, toward a worthy purpose, which means his will must finally prevail. Proverbs chapter twenty. Verse 24, 
Our steps are directed by the Lord. So God wants David to meet Goliath. So here's how he does it. Think about this. The Holy Spirit stirs up dad's concern for his three boys who are out on the battlefield and an ordinary task becomes a life-changing moment. And I think that all believers need to realize this, that as we just go about our lives with an open heart, filled with faith, wanting to serve God, that the Holy Spirit is directing you. He's putting you in the place he's called you to serve. He's at work. He doesn't take breaks. And we just think, well, you know, dad just asked me to go uh, deliver these gifts to the battle line. No, it's God putting this thought in Jesse's head and then David just uh, complying the perfect day and the perfect way, the perfect timing and placement of the brothers in the earshot of the giant Philistine. Everything is orchestrated by God. It's such a comfort. I like this quote as well. Is it an errand you run or a favor you do or a job you take or a person you meet that God uses to change your life and place you in his perfect will. The believer must always realize the spirit of the Lord is leading moment by moment. He's guiding the open-hearted into his perfect will. God is guiding you, and the more you obey, the faster you're going to get there. Now, we learn much from David's actions before he even gets to the battlefield. First of all, he's humble, trusting, and patient. He's depending on God. We've already talked about this. I mean, he's in the sheep pen again. He knows he's been anointed for the job, but he's going to leave his placement up to God. No manipulation, putting himself out there, whining and complaining that he should be out there with his brothers. You know, after all, Samuel anointed him. He's waiting and trusting. Now, he's also obedient to his father. Dad says, hey, can you run an errand for me? Yes, sir. And it's a dangerous one, isn't it? He could get himself killed out there. But he says, yeah, sure, Dad. He's responsible with his job. He finds capable hands to fill in for him so that the sheep will be well taken care of. And look, the Holy Spirit just points it out. He does it early in the morning. This this kid is diligent and responsible and faithful. And he's brave. It's a dangerous job, as I mentioned. And, And perhaps what's up with the other four brothers? They're older. There are four other brothers. If three are on... Uh, the field, and David's in the pen, there there are four other brothers. Why aren't they going? Why? Because he's trustworthy. Dad is saying, listen, I need a job done well. And he knows who to ask. A trustworthy servant, the scripture says, Proverbs 25 and 13. A trustworthy messenger refreshes the one who sent them. What a blessing. He's just a blessing boy. David is the kind of young man that everybody looks at and goes, what a good kid. What a solid guy, responsible and just uh, wise and self-controlled and uh, loves the Lord. Verse 23, lo and behold, and what a coincidence, just the moment David's talking to his brothers, so he's delivered everything. He's talking to his brother, out steps Goliath and bellows out his usual defiance. And guess what? David just happens to hear it and faith comes by hearing 
And this faith is hearing the giant's defiance and bam, a spark starts in his heart. And then in terrible fear, the soldiers uh, all take off uh, for the hills of safety. But David's heard. Now they're running away and David wants more information. Verses 25 to 31. Now the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. That's exciting. Verse 26. (laughs) Even back in those days, 3,000 years ago, and they want the IRS gone. 26. David asked the men standing near him. So now the spark's in his heart, right? So he asked them, now, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised or pagan Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him. This is what will be done for the man who kills him. Like, David, we just told you this. This is number two now. Now, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here, and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David. Can I even speak? Sheesh. I threw in, I threw in this sheesh for you. He, he, he then turned away to some, someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Again, the king is sending for him. David is not placing himself at the front. Roman numeral number three, getting psyched up and getting beat down. All right, so David starts to have a little faith about the possibilities. He hears them, and now he's mulling it over. He's buying time. He's praying. He's reflecting. He's thinking, God, really? Seriously? And and all of this is churning, and the spark goes off in him. Uh, But don't worry. There's a brother standing by just waiting to put out the flame and the hope. Now, Warren Wiersbe put it this way. Whenever you step out in faith to fight the enemy, there's usually someone there to discourage you, and it often starts right with your own family. So, situation so desperate, Saul's offering kind of a bribe here. Verse 25, a cash award, great wealth. Uh, Princess, you will become the king's son-in-law and tax exemption for you and your family of origin. Now, David wants to hear more, but listen to how he frames his questioning. It's really different. It has a different focus. Verse 26, David's not so much concerned with the material reward as with what? The honor of God. Now, uh, he calls the Philistine a disgrace, mocking the living God, um, uh, his uh, mocking God's power, God's purposes, God's existence by uh, calling them out like that. So David is a man after God's own heart. He's a spiritually minded guy. 
So verse 27, David wants to hear it again. The king really, they say, wants him dead. And here's what he's offering. We'll tell you a second time. And verse 28 comes their speed bump on the road to glory. Now, Eliab, you remember him from a couple chapters ago. He was refused. Now, Samuel's looking for the God-appointed king. And he goes into the house. And the number one son is Eliab. And Samuel gets all excited. And Eliab must have seen that because he's getting the oil ready. And he's like, oh, wow, he's so tall and handsome. And it said that in the text about Eliab. And the Lord stops him. And the Lord says, it says, uh, Samuel's thinking, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to, to Samuel about Eliab. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, none of us knew that this was the kind of guy. Now you get to see what the Lord saw, the bitterness and the envy and the resentment and the immaturity of good-looking, tall, number one son. Now from the overflow of his heart, the lips will speak and we all get to see what the Lord knew and tried to warn. Uh, But, you know, Eliab kind of caught on that he was stopped. You know, he's ready, he's excited. And then he says, "Uh, no, let me see another boy. And then they go through all the boys. And in front of Eliab, he has to say, hey, that's the kid. Not you, him, your youngest brother who you all left out in the field, didn't even invite to the party. It's him. Well, that didn't go over apparently very well because we have this little, shall we call it a tirade or a little temper tantrum. Now, you would uh, think that Eliab would be glad to see the kid brother. Why? He brings gifts. He brings some yummies for the tummies, but no. Uh, His... Remarks give him away. He's burning with anger and he begins with ridicule. So verse 28, he's saying, number one, you're a nobody. You're insignificant. And did you get a babysitter for three of your sheep? You know, the three sheep that you have, the little 4-H club thing you got going, you know, please. Uh, We're the warriors. You're the shepherd boy. Okay, go home and play the harp. So that's what I imagine it anyway. Furthermore, and by the way, you're conceited and you're wicked. Wow. <laughs> now, here's what he's saying. You just want to watch. So in other words, you're rebuking us. You're saying that we are spineless cowards and we shouldn't be because we have God in our lives and we should be brave. Well, you want to get us involved to fight this monster, and you, wicked and conceitful person, just want to stir us up, get us out there, rebuke us for our cowardice, and as we go out, you get to have a front row seat. You're wicked, you know? Now, you remember how the king's attendant uh, described David. He's a man who speaks with wisdom. Let's learn from him tonight. Now, here's this slanderous, mean-spirited, sharp-tongued, jealous, envious sibling. And what does he do with him? He doesn't correct the number of sheep. He says, can you imagine David saying, you know what, there's more than a few. There's 127 of those sheep. 
you know, let's get the record straight. You know, do you have any sheep? I have more sheep than you, you know. He doesn't do that, you know, and he doesn't defend his character. Oh, you're calling me wicked. Oh, excuse me, but I was talking to Samuel, and you were up for the job, but God rejected you, and he looked to me. You know what? And he doesn't explain his motives. You know what? Dear old dad, he's on his deathbed. What does he say? His last words to me, go see how my three boys are doing and bring some cheese and some food and find out that's why I'm here. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, oh, brother, can I not even speak? Not this again. And then turns to somebody else because he's going to say, you know what? My concern for God and what God is doing in the congregation and in my own heart is more important than what one of my jealous siblings thinks or says. It only matters what God thinks about you and me. All of these Critics just sidestep the critics and embrace the one who's calling you and empowering you and the only one you're going to stand before. He's not going to stand before Eliab. So he dodges Eliab's bullets. Here's what Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite all-time pastors, 1800s, a British uh, pastor, he's He spoke a sermon on this, and he said, David's already won the battle. He's won battle number one, the war of words, with his brothers and King Saul that's coming, which was probably more effort than slinging the stone. Many a man meets with more trouble from his friends than from his enemies, and when he has learned to overcome the depressing influence of so-called prudent friends, he makes short work of the opposition of his adversaries. So David responds in verse 29. You see, okay, here we go again. Can I even speak? We've already been here. And uh, he's firm, polite. He moves on and he turns to somebody else to go forward. You know, now for the third time, David is going to hear the challenge. He's thinking and praying, as I suggested. And the third time's the charm. Someone sees the spark of fire in his eyes. One of the soldiers hears the tone and determination in his voice and they go to the king and they say, Saul, we got a live wire on row number three. (laughs) And so verse 32 to 40, now the king's going to find out. Now, oh, the king says, bring him on, bring him over to me. Verse 32, David said to Saul, so now David's before the king, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he's been fighting, he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, Go 
and the Lord be with you. (laughs) Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic, his robe. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go out in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Number four, preparation for battle. Now, a couple more speed bumps along David's way. Uh, and they're potentially a fatal to the whole story, but God's spirit is going to prevail as David cooperates. So Saul has his initial doubts, as all of us would. In verse 32, David's confident. He says, all right, everybody, in essence, let's all calm down. This Philistine's days are of uh, taunting us are coming to an end. Now, Uh, David's confident. He says, I'll fight him. Now, Saul's unimpressed. Saul's response is, kid, this warrior has been fighting since before you were born. Give it up. You're just a boy. Now, David's faith-filled logic here. Here's a paraphrase. But David says, what's the difference between a charging bear and a lion pouncing and this pagan brute? I've killed ferocious animals with my bare hands. This Philistine will become like one of those beasts because he's defying the Lord and his people. And the same God who saved me from the mouth of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me from this bad boy. Saul says, well, okay. God bless you. (laughs) David has experienced God's power in his life. Something Paul, uh, not Paul, Saul. (laughs) Saul has never experienced. He doesn't know about that power and David has had uh, in his heart and life. He's saying in essence, hey, look, I've been in hot water before. God's come through. I've had my back against the wall. God's been faithful. I've had a beast on me threatening my life. God's delivered me. This is our land God gave it to our people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are their descendants. This is the promised land. He is a pagan. He is uncircumcised. He's uncovenanted. He doesn't belong in the picture. Therefore, he's got to go. And I come to this conclusion. He's defying God. He's a menace to his people. It's safe to assume Uh, looking at God's faithfulness in the past, that God is going to take him out, and you know what? He's going to use me to do it. Now, Saul's worldly logic, verse 38. Well, you better fight fire with fire. You're going to need weapons, you know, because he's got weapons. So he's got a nice robe. Here's mine. Uh, He's got a bronze helmet. Take mine. He's got a coat of armor. Here's mine. What, What Saul doesn't realize is that David has armor. He has the helmet of salvation. He has the breastplate of righteousness. He has the shield of faith with with which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. He's got a suit of armor. 
that Saul knows nothing about. And so when David is like a grade school kid with dad's suit on, walking around like this, he says, you know what? This isn't the way I roll. This isn't me. This is you. All right. Okay, he might not have said it quite like that. He says, you know what? I can't be you. I got to be me. And you know what? I see a lot of ministers who grow up listening to a certain guy, and then they sound exactly like that guy. When I'm clicking around, listening to sermons on the internet, I'll hear mini Chuck. I'll hear a mini John Corson. I'll hear mini Greg Laurie. They, I can't even tell them apart. If, if, if I heard both of them, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you who's the real Chuck Smith because they're wearing his armor, I think. I mean, there's no need. We just need to be who God created us to be. It doesn't work to say, hey, I want to be just like him. We can be inspired, but we don't have to go out in Saul's armor. Just let the Lord use you in your wonderful, unique way. Amen. So uh, he says, let me do my thing. Uh, and he picks the five smooth stones because they're going to fly really well. They're not going to get hung up. Why does he pick five? You've heard this story a million times. But, uh, I, apparently in 2 Samuel, I believe it's chapter 21, we find out that Goliath had four brothers. And so there are five stones, one for uh, Goliath and four just in case. So he takes out his trusty sling. He grabs his shepherd's staff and talk about faith. He goes to him, out walks David. And uh, just just wonderful, just inspiring moment to see him going to the giant. So number five, we just have to read through. I'm going to just punctuate now the fifth and final point, the battle. I'll read a little bit and then just punctuate with some comments. Uh, Verse 41 to 44, meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy. He was about 18, 17, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, Dagon and Baal, Baal. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So what do we see here? Well, Goliath's insulted when he finally gets a good look at this kid. And he realizes, this kid is, how old are you? Do you have your driver's license or what? You're 17 years old or whatever? And and why does it say that he was ruddy and handsome? And why would that tick uh, Goliath off? Well, Well, because ruddy is to... Fair, fair-faced, all right? So f- fair-complected, all right? And handsome there, in this context, means cute. So he says, he looks at this kid who's now, he's not manly handsome yet. He's 17 years old. He doesn't have full facial hair yet. He's fair, and he's cute, 
and he looks at him and goes, are you kidding me? You, could you send me a man, you know, like just a big, you know, Java the Hutt or something? You know, well, it wasn't, wouldn't be a man, but yeah, send me, send me some beast like myself, you know? So seriously, you guys can't do better. Okay, boy, come, and we'll give the vultures a little snack. And uh, he curses David in the name of Dagon. Now, that was really silly, because back in chapter 5, Dagon, a statue of him was put up, and the they parked the Ark of the Covenant in front of Dagon, and they came in the morning, and he was bowed down with his head decapitated. Oh, those who worship idols will become like their idol. Scripture. That was a mistake to bring Dagon into it, but he did. So he says, uh, kid, you're going down in the name of Dagon. Okay, verse 45. David has a response to that. And it's very moving to me, 45 through 47. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me. I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. So here's what he's saying. Okay, mister, you got your fancy weapons, and I've got the Lord who made heaven and earth, the one whom you are defying. Now, here's the agenda for the day. One, God will hand you over to me. Two, I will kill you. And three, I will take your head from you. And it's your troops that will provide the vultures a little snack. And everyone in the whole world will hear about this and praise our God the motto of this story, sir, will be, it's not about fancy weapons, it's about God, it's his battle. It's not about owning or renting, it's not about college or no college, it's not about degree or no degree, it's not about IRA or no IRA, it's not about your career, it's not about your money or no money, it's not about your spouse, or lack thereof. It just has nothing to do with anything when God is uh, concerned. Faith, God. He doesn't need stuff. He will use the stuff. And when those things that I mentioned, those good things, perfectly fine things, wise things, but only if God's hand's on him, Riches endure for a moment. Blink your eyes, the proverb says, and boom, they're gone. There goes your hope. Come on, we've been through economic times like that. We can't put our trust in anything but the Lord. That's the point. Now let's finish up 48 to the end. As the Philistines, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead 
and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. You know, what about the agreement there? You know, hey, come on back here. You promised. The devil never keeps his promises, by the way. Just throw, throwing that in there. Verse 52. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath, to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and, and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistines' weapon in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, O king, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, and David was still holding on to that Philistine's head. <laughs> he probably just can't believe it. He just has to, I don't know how he held it, you know, by the ear or the hair. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I'm the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. So let's finish up with a couple thoughts. Fearless faith. Righteous are bold as a lion. You've got the Holy Spirit in your heart. And listen, you're living right with God. You're going to be confident. The righteous are as bold as a lion, Proverbs 28.1. And he's a good aim. He's had lots of practice. He's been meditating, singing songs that have been psalms out there. And as he's aiming and meditating, the Lord has anointed now his shot straight to the only unprotected spot on the Philistine, his forehead. Uh, God always gets his man, no matter how much you try to uh, prevent that from happening. David kills Goliath. Uh, the job's complete, and he makes sure that he goes all the way. Verse 51. That's the thing we, don't, we grimace about, but you know, when you've got your spiritual enemy down, you make sure you do the job all the way. You don't want a revived Goliath. Amen? It's, that would be very ugly especially if it didn't have his head. <laughs> All right, verse 55 through 58. <laughs> Saul, uh, no, no, no. Saul wants more details about David's family. It's kind of confusing because we know he's already kind of met him. But commentators say, look, either David is playing behind a wall or a curtain or something like that, or the narration here isn't about chronology so much as in this time he's getting to know Saul Saul's still uh, wants really information about dad's history because now this guy's marrying into the family he wants to know now who is this guy and let's get a hold of his father and yeah and uh, about the daughter part yeah he's going to be my son-in-law so could we do a little research now 
uh, go on the internet and find out about Jesse. All right. Let me close with a quote from Spurgeon. And uh, this is how he ended his sermon. He said, I wish that young men and women here tonight would aspire to live bravely, bravely rather, for the Lord, that they would stand up for truth and goodness and eternal glory, that they would be ready to shine for their destined hour. Why should there be so many average Christians? Is there not room for a few extremely devoted souls who will fight for the Lord and never turn back like this young man? If it's self-sacrifice that's needed, let's make it. If someone needs to go to a distant land to preach the gospel in a dangerous place, let's go. If we need to rise up in our own generation and bear truth to a weak-willed, compromised church, let us cry, here am I, send me. With a will to serve and a heart of love and faith, God will help us do great things. Where are the Davids? Where are the Esthers and the Deborahs and the Apostle Pauls? Where are they? They don't have much. But what they don't have physically, they make up with a heart that's just so sold out. And they believe down to their toenails. They're just filled with this unstoppable faith and this wonderful love for God. They took risks. What a risk. What a risk taker. Calculated, smart, confirmed along the way, but a risk nonetheless. And what a reward God gave. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this chapter, a long chapter filled with great truth. Help us to digest these truths and put them into practice and be blessed in Christ's name. Amen.